How many of you um, have kids, like at Antioch? Like, just raise your hand. Okay. I was thinking this morning, as we were getting our kids ready for church, that I might start a support group for parents who have to get children ready for church. (laughs) It's literally one of the most crazy things that we go through in life, my wife and I. Um, So there you go. Um, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad your kids are here. And you can pray for me on Sunday mornings. Um, I, I once heard, kind of in seminary, I used to listen to tapes. It was my big thing, like in grad school, I, would, I had this little recorder, and it had a speed control on it, and I literally, this was back in the audio cassette days, like two years ago, you know, when there's audio cassettes. Um, this is back in the, the 90s, so audio cassettes, and I would get books on tape, um, anything on tape I could get, sermons, everything, conference stuff, and I, I had to drive. I was doing grad school, and I was also doing this college group at a church, and I literally would drive back and forth like three or four times a day, uh, Whittier and La Mirada, just back and forth. So I would just power through tapes because they were like on two times normal speed. It had a little tone control, so you could take the chipmunk down to where it actually just sounded like people talking really fast, right? It was... Side note, but after like two years of this, I got to where I was so impatient with people in conversation. Like, <laughs> this is before Tamar too, so I had, the edge on me was just a lot sharper back then as well. But, I mean, I'd just be in conversation like, just, you know, <laughs> spit it out, you know. Uh, but so I listen to these tapes, and, and I got to the point where I'd just gone through every John Piper tape ever. I'd gone through like just everything and, and I started just getting, uh, I joined this little books on tape club, you know, those things you get free in the mail and all that. And I got like these motivational, a couple of these motivational speaker kind of things. Now I, I remember one thing from one of those tapes that just always sounded like the coolest analogy. I have no idea if it's true. And uh, it's like tour guides when you go overseas, like you got to take it with a grain of salt, right? Um, but this one thing that I heard in one of these tapes just stuck with me, and, and this is what it was. It was uh, an old Vince Lombardi story. And the story goes that, uh, that Vince Lombardi um, kind of was one of the early coaches, and the whole kind of revolution from running the ball to being a little bit more elaborate with passing the ball kind of happened while he was a head coach. And a reporter was there one, one time at practice, and he said to Vince Lombardi, um, your playbook is literally eight plays. It's, it's only got eight plays, and, and, you know, everyone else now is being more complicated with throwing the ball, things like that. How come yours is so simple? I don't get it. You know, why aren't you being more complicated that way? And he, and he just supposedly said to this reporter, he, he pointed at the, the offensive lineman. He says, you see those 350-pound guys over there? Says, yeah, because I need them to be aggressive, and they can't be aggressive if they're confused. And that always just, the picture of, of being like a 350-pound lineman and just the whole thing is, um, you know, you're sitting there in a three-point stance, you know, and all an offensive lineman has to think is, you know, don't jump early, don't jump early, don't jump early, don't jump early, jump. You know, like that's, that's really the offensive lineman. Who, you know, which direction am I going to get all this mass going? Um, and, and who am I going to block with it? And, and it just seemed that 
that, so if that story isn't true, it should, because it's really, it's really profound to me that to be confident, things sometimes need to be clear. Does that make sense? Last week we talked about Elijah, and, and I left off kind of accidentally the best part of the story. Um, and so I wanted to pick that thread up and as we kind of march through today. But the story of Elijah, if you were here last week, is he's really in this time where at, at best there's a lot of syncretism. Syncretism is the big fancy word for when you blend two things together. So at best, the people of Israel have blended this, this faith that they've received from Yahweh, their God, um, in the, the, the Torah, and, and they've blended that with kind of the, the local deities or the local gods, or, or they've just kind of merged the two. At worst, they've out and out rejected God. Okay, so this is widespread, uh, largely because the, the elite of the culture are kind of leading people that way or creating a lot of this confusion. So his role as a prophet is to address this and to kind of try and, try and speak to the people and wake them up from what's going on so that they can understand this and come back to a wholehearted commitment in God. And here's what he says uh, in chapter 18 of 1 Kings. Here's what Elijah says. Um, he went before the people and says, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, if Baal is God, follow him. How long will you waver between two opinions? Now, I'm reading from the NIV. I've been thinking at some point in the future here, we're going to probably switch to the, what's called the ESV, the English Standard Version. But I'm reading now the NIV, and the NIV is what's called a, a uh, more of a dynamic translation. Okay? There's literal translations, which would be your uh, New American Standard Bible, okay? which try to track word for word as best they can, very literal. And there's a problem that comes with that in the sense that um, the Greek language, the Hebrew language, they're not always written in the same word order. They're not always written the way English is written. So you get what's called very wooden. You understand that phrase? Very wooden, kind of very stale, kind of very difficult, maybe cumbersome translations. But the value is you get kind of just word for word. The NIV is what's called a dynamic translation where they take the literal and then they, they try and understand in English how do you best say what that says and, and you try and make it a little more dynamic so that it's not necessarily word for word, but thought for thought. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, the value there is that it's a, a lot higher on the readability index. Okay. Um, but if you're doing word studies, it's not as easy to kind of box a word and see that word like pop up over and over and, and whatnot because, again, the language you're using might be a little bit different from time to time to, to try and best communicate the thought. So this is a dynamic translation, and it says that Elijah went before the people and says, how long will you waver between two opinions? It's a good translation. But to get a little deeper, the actual literal phrase here 
is how long will you limp between two opinions? That's the literal. You don't say that in English. You know, I mean, make up your mind, NBC or ABC. Quit limping between the two. You know, you know what I mean? Like, it's just not, not American, right? But visually, and, and the Hebrew is very visual. Do you know most language starts very symbolic? I mean, the word describes something that you can see almost. Does that make sense? And then over time, what you see kind of goes away, and the word takes on its own meaning in its own life. But, but most language begins very pictorial. And the phrase here is, how long will you limp between two opinions? You've got a God over here and a worldview over here, and you've got a God and a worldview over here, and you're, you're, you're limping between the two. You're wavering between the two. And the picture that you get there is one of very, very slow and very awkward non-movement. Have you ever tried to, like, you're going down the freeway and you're in that lane and you don't know if that lane goes to the right or the left, like on the freeway, this is like L.A. nightmare, you know? And it's like got one of those arrows and the arrow splits to go in two directions. You're in that lane that's going to go one way or the other, but you don't know which way you're supposed to go. You know what I'm talking about? You start to like panic and yell at your wife because it's her fault. And you're like, what do, you, what do you begin to do as you see that like the big orange thing with the water like all in it, like coming right at you? You start to slow down because you're confused. And when, you, when, you're, when you're waffling, when you're wavering between these two options, you begin to slow down because you have lack of clarity, lack of confidence. And if there's any picture I would try to put on American Christianity, it would be that picture. That we're, we're kind of torn and we're kind of a little bit confused. And because of that, we, we really start to slow down and we don't really know what to do or where to go with it. And we, we don't have a lot of confidence. There's a lot of like, reasons for that. But we're caught in this position and we, we, we're, we're between the two and we don't really know which way to go. In the 80s, something became really popular. It was called the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel is really simply, this is an overstatement, but it's not really. Um, God wants you to be rich. You just got to have enough faith. Um, and, you know, give me a lot of money for my television program so that I can drive a Rolls Royce and have a gold-plated toilet, and I'll tell you how you can be as rich as I am. You know, like, it's, it's kind of that... It's the prosperity gospel. But you take the problem with heresy, like wrong theology, is that it always has a nugget of truth. Do you understand that? There's always a nugget in there. And God really does say, if you give your money to me, if you trust me, if you lay it before me, I will bless you. God really does say that. Okay? Now, if you take that out of context and you try to swindle a bunch of people, you can tell them, look, God says, give your money. Um, here's what you write on the check. <laughs> and then he'll bless you. 
He'll open up the treasure stores of heaven and just bless you. Now, you take that one little thing and you take it out. Of, you can build a whole like cult or a heresy or, or whatever around it. The crazy thing about it is that if you look at all of Scripture, how in the world could you walk away with the idea that God, what God really wants is for you to be rich? I mean, that's just what he, every day he just gets up. If only you would let him make you rich. That's, he's stressing about that. I mean, there's no way that you can read the Bible and think that that's God's priority for you. I mean, even Jesus saying it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, I mean, there's, I mean, we could go on and on, but, but this, is a, this is something that came in the 80s. So when you look at that, you begin to go, is that more a, a type of teaching growing up that fits what people want to hear than maybe a teaching growing up that's what is actually what people need to hear? Eugene Peterson is an author I really respect, and he once said, I, I read this in, back in my college group days, and it was profound. I mean, he said, look, um, your job as a pastor, as a preacher, is not to preach always to people's felt needs, but to tell them what their real needs are beneath what they feel. And it it really always stuck with me, that and Lombardi, right? And, uh, And so we begin to look at some of these things and we say, in America, in the 80s, Everyone was rich and prosperity was everywhere and, and everyone's trying to keep up with everyone. And all of a sudden there's this Christian, Christian teaching which kind of baptizes that and fits it. Does that make sense? Well, guess what happens when you come to 2007 and 8 and 9 and 10 and 11 and there's uh, the whole fabric of America's changed now. It's not this like out of control boom, economic boom thing. Now what's the teaching that like grows up to fit where we're at? I don't think we know. I mean, I, I think we're in such a period of transition that we're, we're realizing that we kind of still want God to make us rich, but maybe that's not his plan for us. I wish it was. And, and like, I kind of want an answer to suffering because I'm suffering. And I've got neighbors that are suffering. And it's a lot more like our brothers and sisters in the third world that live with a theology of suffering. And we're kind of like, I kind of wish I knew that side of the Bible a little bit because I kind of need it or want it or it feels a little relevant. But then there's that little voice deep down inside that says, don't listen too closely to that. God might make you suffer if you do. You know, you, you kind of want to pretend that's not there because you don't want to all of a sudden think that you have to go there. And so you, we're, we're kind of caught. I mean, we're kind of caught. It, and then we kind of throw to that, like, the lack of confidence. And you know what lack of confidence begins to do is it begins to fuel itself, and lack of confidence begins to ultimately lead to a, a type of despair or frustration that manifests itself as greater doubt. So pretty soon it's not even what does the Bible say? Is, the Bible, is it here? Is it where is it? Pretty soon it's like, man, can I even trust the Bible? I mean, I, don't, I mean, this was me, like, in my 20s. You know, I don't know if it's any of you guys, but I would go straight to the questions, like the real questions. Um, well, okay, that's great and all, but how can I trust that? Is it true? What do you mean? What do you mean it's true? Like, what about other, like, you know, great texts in the world? And, 
you know, I was in a hermeneutics class, beginning of grad school, and the teacher broke us up into two groups. One group was supposed to defend the authority of Scripture. The other group was supposed to, like, you know, argue the other side. And I sat there, you know, in my little group and didn't really say much and just, you know, went around and around in my head with it and all that. And then it was time to kind of do this little mock debate. And my group looks at me and they're like, you, you go do it. All right. You know, and, and uh, so I went up there and I just vomited all over this class reasons why the Bible wasn't true. Like devil's advocate, right? And... The mood went from, what a fun class, it's the second week of class, isn't this great, to all of a sudden 30 people looked at the professor like, like, and the professor, like, didn't, I mean, he's kind of funny, like, he just, like, had these wide eyes, like, he'd never heard that stuff before, and he just kind of like, okay, and just moved us on, right? (laughs) All right, you know, but uh, when we lack confidence, we lack faith. When we lack faith, we're very aware of our doubts. They, they grow and they manifest, and they're real. I mean, if you want to know why I believe the Bible's true, because I do, then, then hang around for redux. We do redux because it starts with the question. So what we get to talk about at redux is right where the conversation is at. I, I'd much rather all of you come to redux and like 20 of you come to the main service. Justin wouldn't like that, but... Um, than, than the other way around. But when we lack confidence, when we, when we kind of begin to get confused, our categories, our, our sense of this is how it's always been done, and I got this thing figured out, and all that kind of unravels a little bit, and we're left with a lot of questions. And that's, I think, where we're at. In America, so here's this interesting thing I, I picked up the other day. Uh, if you've never used Bible Gateway, you should. Bible Gateway is this like online uh, Bible gateway. Um, <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. It's uh, it's got all the translations, and you can search things, and it's it's just the, it's killer. So just go to BibleGateway.com, you'll figure it out. It's really simple, um, but. Listen to this. They have 8 million visitors each month. Okay, 8 million visitors each month. And so they uh, tallied their most searched verses. Their most searched verses. The top 10 most searched verses. And, and there's something really interesting about these. Okay, I'll run. You guys have any idea which, which ones they are? First one's obvious, and then the next ones aren't. But um, here's the top 10 most searched verses by 8 million people a month. Number one, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Number two, Jeremiah 29.11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, Plans to give you hope in a future. Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Who have been called according to his purpose. Philippians 4.13. This is number four. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Number five. 
I don't know, it's probably an anomaly because it's just what pops up first, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 are the next two most searched verses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Uh, number 8, Romans 12, 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, what God's will is for your life, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Philippians 4, 6, number 9. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And then it goes on and talks about the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds. We talked about that last week. Number 10, Matthew 28, 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's called the Great Commission. It's the top 10. When I was reading those things, like what's fascinating about it the, the vast majority are very affirmational and inspirational verses, right? Not until you get to search number 19 do you see the word sin show up anywhere, okay? How, now, so here's me this week, you know, and I'm just like, it's really interesting. When, when left to themselves... To find verses, I mean, that's unbelievable statistics. They'll, they'll tell you who's going to win a presidential race by like a thousand people in a random poll, right? Okay, so eight million a month over however long. I mean, this is rock solid data that when people go somewhere and they want to find a verse or, or are looking for a verse that they've heard of, the, the most common ones that they might have heard, you know, all of that kind of together, where they end up more than anywhere else is very inspirational, affirmational, and encouraging. How, how can we interpret that? I'm asking. So just shout it out or raise your hand, whatever. There's a lot of different ways to interpret that. I want, I want to hear a couple of ways that you could kind of interpret that data. People need encouragement. Absolutely. Absolutely. Maybe we should write these. All right. People need encouragement. What's another one? Yes. Self-focused. Which isn't always bad. It's kind of the way we're created, right? In some sense, we, we're very aware of self. What was that? Fear. You know, the interesting thing about fear is you'll always try and find an answer for it. It doesn't allow itself to be ignored. Very, very interesting comment. What's another, what's another one? Hope. People need hope. You know, the, the Jeremiah verse, um, I don't know where that piece of paper went now. The Jeremiah verse is really fascinating because, uh, there it is, it's on the top. The, uh, 
For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. Was spoken to who? Who's, who's the recipient of those prophetic words? The Israelites, the family, the community, the congregation, the nation. If we were to do the direct parallel right now, it would be this thing called the church that's existed for 2,000 years. God, it's God's plan A in this world. There, there is no plan B. He will always, it's his bride. It's Christ's bride. It's his body. He will always take care of it. No matter what the ups and downs are, God has a plan for the church. A plan to grow it, a plan to prosper it, for us in it, us as a part of it, to have a hope, to have a future. The, the lamp is never going to be snuffed out of the church. Does that make sense? You can also apply it and say, I I'm a part of the church. I'm a member in the church. I'm a part of the family. Um, God does care ultimately about my good. God is a God of loving kindness and mercy. He's a, he's a father. Now, you might have had a bad father, but this father is, is like the definition of father. And the definition of father is good. If you just take a bad example out of it and just put what it ought to be, it's good. So we can certainly apply that verse to our individual lives, but we kind of got to understand the context of God and what he's after before we just jump to, because that verse and the word prosper there gets used a lot to say, I know that next year is going to be a good year for me. My, my portfolio is going to go up by 20%. Why? Because I've been praying Jeremiah 29. You see, you see, you see that disconnect? It's not necessarily what it means. Anyways, but we do need hope and God speaks to our hope. What's another way we can interpret this? Yeah, that, that we, um, that there are certain things that, that we hear a lot. There's uh, is that kind of what you're saying? There's common, common verses, common verses for sure, yeah. Yeah, we're back to our freeway analogy, aren't we? God, I don't know, you tell me which way to go, I'll go, but man, I just need you to speak a word to me right now. I'm a, little, I'm a little alone, I'm a little lost, I'm a little confused. You know, there's one more. Does anyone else have another? Comfort? Comfort. Um, yeah, I'll put that up here with this one. God's love. Yeah, yeah, you know, we want to come back to the Hallmarks, it's like the card. Is that how they got the name Hallmark? Hallmarks, is that two L's of the faith? Okay, the, uh, the, 
the other thing here, and there's some things going on beneath the surface. Here, let me throw out a couple other words. Is that up there? Yeah. We're pretty selective. I mean, there's, I don't know how many verses, I should count. I, I could do a search. I'm not going to count. I don't know how many verses there are in the Bible. Um, but it's amazing that all those kind of have that similar type of theme to it. We're very selective. Um, we're also very, um, I don't know how to say this. I'll, I'll just explain it. We're very top-driven. I mean, we, we, we all, my kids, we want the Band-Aid before we want the, the thorn pulled out. Does that make sense? So we're very, we kind of run to the happy ending, not, not the middle of the story. So if, if you're going to define all the Disney movies, you define them all by that, that happy moment at the end, right? If we're going to define the Bible, we typically go to the end where, where it's got a happy ending and, and try to select that. You know, there's, there's some deeper things going on here that, that I think this is fascinating for me to look at. Um, and I would bring it back and say, um, your comment about self is also pretty huge. Because when we really try to put the whole picture together, the, the, the whole puzzle together, we, we have elements that don't always show up Matter of fact, you know, was years into being a Christian before I really understood that those verses were everywhere. But the state that we're in, sin, doesn't really show up that much. Our personal responsibility, our culpability, our, our, our neediness because we, we know the good but just can't always do it, Right? Doesn't, doesn't immediately show up. There's another thing on the other end of the spectrum that doesn't always show up, and it's the glory of God. All through the Bible, we have this theme about the glory of God, that all things are from, through, and to um, God, that, that they're done to the praise of God, that it's to His glory, that ultimately this grand narrative has a self-interest aspect about God that's not selfish. Why is it not selfish? Because it's not at our expense. See, self-interest is different than selfish when you look at the way it affects people other than yourself. If I do something I want to do, I choose to do, I'm excited to do, and it benefits me, but it also benefits you, it's not selfish, is it? You guys get, get that? distinction? If I do something selfish, it's saying at the expense of you, or if I don't even care about you, I'm going to do this regardless. That's selfish. But this whole, this kind of refrain in the story of God's glory that God's got this plan, and it's going to make him happy, and it's going to make us happy, and there's this real unity that comes together, and that's the whole thread to it. So it's not just doling out affirmation or encouragement. It's, it's love, and, and it's the nature of love to bind two things together. And so God's good for us doesn't happen just in a vacuum where our, our quotient goes up 
thank goodness, because yesterday sucked and today is better. No, it, it happens in relationship. And so as God blesses and loves and nurtures and encourages, it's, it's a part of his relationship with us and it grows us together because it's the nature of love to bind two things together. And it's the nature of love to always give and to sacrifice for the beloved. Jesus says love has no greater example than you lay down your life. So worship, we come and we sing in church. Why do we do that? People, if you're new to church or haven't been in church in a long time, it must be really weird to come in and sing about the blood of the Lamb. You know, you don't hear that on 104.1. I mean, it's not normal song lyrics. But we sing about the, the blood of the Lamb, because what is that symbolic of? It's symbolic of Jesus laying down his life and dying on a cross so that he could bless us, so that he could give to us what we needed most. So it, it's the nature of love to, to sacrifice and to give, and it's the nature of love to bind two things together. And so this goodness of us exists not just in a vacuum. But it exists with the glory of God, and it exists with the supremacy of God, and it exists with our need over here that we're broken. That it doesn't matter how many moral lessons you give me, I'm still going to be tempted by a piece of cheesecake. I don't know if that fit. That's not my vice. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's still that thing that no matter how much we know stuff, we're just fundamentally just broken a little bit. And we need forgiveness. We crave forgiveness. You know, it's funny. Our whole culture has tried to erase guilt by saying that religion creates guilt. So therefore, religion is bad because people shouldn't be going around with guilt. And you know what verse number 19 was on that list? It's the very thing that talks to guilt. It says this. Uh, I have this one memorized, but I, I try not to recite verses because when I try and do it from memory, I always screw it up, so it's easier to read. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So God will bless and forgive and, and comfort and, and cover over and make us righteous as we take our brokenness and lay it before him. So one of the biggest problems in life is guilt. What do we do with guilt? We, we run to these verses, understanding that this whole picture is one of hope and joy and goodness. When we say that guilt is bad and we got to get rid of religion, you know what's really going on there? It's just saying, I don't want to admit that I'm wrong. You know, I mean, when I look at my daughter and, and say, look, you need to say you're sorry to your sister, and you see, I got two that do it really good and two that don't. The two that don't, you know what their face immediately washes with? It doesn't matter whether I'm wrong or not. I'm not going to say I'm wrong, which is a form of pride. If it was your kid, I'd say it was pride. It's my kid's form of pride. Um... <laughs> But it has nothing to do with, we all know we're wrong deep down inside. We would just rather be made right without having to cop to it if we can. 
So we kind of blame religion instead of just saying, God, I did it again. You know, and I've said I've done it again 10 times, and that really bothers me because you're starting to know, God, that I'm going to probably do it again. And that really makes me angry, God, that you know and I know that I'm going I'm to probably do it again, mess up, screw up, whatever, because now I really have to admit that it's 100% you and 0% me. Because the first 10 times I, I forgave, it was kind of a, a wave at it and saying, yeah, 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 let's, let's just make, let's make nice, God. But the real thing that's going on is now that I've admitted it and, and gotten your forgiveness and, and said I did wrong, I'm going to go do right. Emphasis on my pride. And when it comes to that 10th time, we begin to realize that God knows and we know that no matter how sorry we are now, we're going we're gonna to be back here again. And so it really shifts and becomes about grace that's awkward to receive, that we don't deserve it. It's just sticky. It's like saying I'm the worst of the worst. I can't even do what I, I think I should do. And that's not going to change, but yet it's okay. And I can look at you in the eye, God, because that's what shame and guilt first breaks. You know one of the easiest ways to tell someone's not telling you the truth they stop looking in your eye. You know, so I, I got to look you in the eye, God, knowing that I'm still going to do this again, but it's okay. You see it all, but it's okay. How do I get over that awkwardness? And the only way to do it is to accept grace, which means to the glory of God and to the benefit of us, but our pride dies That's the whole, see, that's the whole story. So now here's the interesting thing. If I asked you the question about these verses, if I said, are they, what's the best way to say it? If I put 10, 10 of you up here on the stage and I said, these verses, is it what all 10 of these need to hear right now? What would be your answer? It'd be like, ah, it's the wrong question. It doesn't, it just, I, it just doesn't feel like the right question. Is that kind of how you'd feel? Yes? No? Because I think the question we'd be saying is, like, I don't know, man. That, that jerk probably needs to hear that he's a jerk. And she just needs to hear to knock it off. And he needs to hear that, you know, whatever. I don't know, I'm running out of things. You know, and, but that, that, those two sitting right there, yes, 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 a thousand times yes. They, God, they are so broken. They're so, these two, right, I know these, they're so needy right now. There's no pride, there's no pretentiousness, there's only need, and they cry out to you. I mean, God, can't you hear their cry? Yes, those verses, that's exactly what those two need. You, you kind of get where I'm going with that?
that, that these verses, it really depends on where we're at as to whether they're the right verses or the best verses or the best truths or the best things to hear, the best message to receive for that specific person at that specific time. And so when, when I look at this and you guys say these are hallmark verses, these are comfortable verses, these are encouraging verses, what I, I kind of remember this phrase in my head that's, that Jesus came to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. That the greatest thing that some people needed was to come face to face with their own selfishness and sinfulness and pride and be broken of that as part of a process of, of, of finding the ability to submit to God and accept that grace. And then some people are already there. And so Jesus comes up to those people and he, he gives the Beatitudes, which comes from the word um, for happy, blessed, and he, he's trying to affirm and comfort these people. And he gives his own top ten list, and he says, Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Blessed are you who are meek. Blessed are you who, who just crave righteousness, who hunger and thirst for it. Like, it's all you want. Blessed are you who are peacemakers. You labor to, like, just bring harmony and unity to situations. And, and he's not saying this in a vacuum. He's saying it to people that are poor, that are impoverished, that are harassed from the Romans, that don't even have certain freedoms and liberties. He's saying this in real life. He's saying it to you when you're looking at your tax statement. He's saying it to you when you're looking at your pink slip. He's saying it to you when you're looking at your divorce papers. He's saying, there is a place I can take you where you will be blessed, where we will be together, where I will affirm you, you can come now to me and, and I will lead. You are, you're, you're broken and I care for you. And then there's another place where it's like Jesus says, there's, no, there's nothing I can do for you, man. I'm, you, you and I just, we're not having the same conversation here. It's what he did with the rich young ruler. It's what he did with the Pharisees who were ostensibly religious. But Jesus said, not only, did he, not only did he say we can't have a conversation, he said, you guys are jerks. Jesus said it worse. He said, you guys are a brood of vipers. Can you picture taking me and all the other pastors in town, putting it here, and then squinting your eyes and picturing us like Indiana Jones like with, there's like a whole pit of snakes. I mean, it's crazy what Jesus is saying. Crazy. So you line up 10 people. I don't know what they most need to hear. My guess is it's different for each person. Holy cow. Uh, give me a second here. We're... We're reconfiguring. <laughs> well, we got to the introduction. <laughs> Next week will be easy. Um, good night. Uh, let, me, let me try and land it this way. 
I, someone accused me, well, as a family member, so this is it's not really accusatorial. Family members can say whatever. I had a family member say to me, you know, I think you've preached the same message for four years in a row. Bang. You know, it's kind of like, okay. Um, and I think that's the case. Like, I was thinking about it this morning, and I, I kind of realized, you know what, that's the truth. It's the introduction and the conclusion change. Everything else is the same. So you could leave halfway through a sermon. If, you leave, if it's one of you, I know you're going to the bathroom. If it's two of you, I know you're walking out. That's, that's how I tell. Um, but you could leave halfway during a message, and a year from now come back halfway through a message and feel like, well, I didn't miss a thing. Um, and what, I'm, what I really think I'm trying to get at is more than anything, because when I'm talking to 500 people, how, how, there's not one thing that's most needed for all of you. What's most needed for anyone usually comes about in, in one-to-one conversation, doesn't it? Over coffee. That's when you really get to where it's, where it's relevant to your life. That's why this church has to become a community. Because in small groups, when you go like, hey, this is the lesson plan for today, and then all of a sudden you're like, an hour and a half went by, all we did was prayer requests. Okay. You know what I mean? Because we just got to what's going on in each other's lives. And we got to share meals, and we got to break it down, because that's where it's going to be most relevant. It's also where... God speaks to us best when we're reading Scripture, when we're praying our way through stuff. Because it's like customized, it's organic, it's tied up in the context of relationship. Does that make sense? So, I, um, so when I'm coming, I'm trying to do one thing. Lately, there's been a debate. I think it's a false debate. I talked about it last week at Redux. You can find it online. But it's between faith and and works. Let me do it the other way. Let me do uh, works here, faith here. And I think what that conversation is really hitting at is active or passive. And it pits the two against each other. Well, and some of us are coming in today, and you know what God's saying? Um, slow down. Don't do anything for a year. Just realize I've got it. You're, you're just running around like crazy thinking that, like, if you stop, the whole world will fall apart. Just s- slow down, okay? There's some of you coming in here that are very American, and what I mean by that is um, it's nice to be able to push away any sense of obligation and say, um, you know what? It's all about faith. It's not about works. So there's no real, it's about faith. And we define faith as I I have God and Jesus in my bucket of things, my bumper stickers that I put on my body. I, I got the right bumper stickers. I'm a good Christian because I put the right bumper stickers on my body. Works, you know, when you start playing with doing stuff, active, you know, that's bad it can it could it could anger God or look like it's Catholic, so it's best just not to do it. And that's that's kind of a very subtle American way of just taking the obligation away. And what's crazy about it is, let me start at the beginning. There's seven days. God put both active and passive into him. Do you know that? 
In Deuteronomy, he says, look, I give you these commands to do certain kinds of things, and as you do those, um, I will honor and bless that. You get on, and you, you, you see, oh, let's just skip to the end. You know, Jesus saying, let your good deeds bring praise to God. Um, Paul, Pauline theology, where we get a lot of these verses about faith in Christ, says you're God's workmanship, created to do good works before you were ever even born. It was like predestined for you. God has things for you to do. If you don't do them, who's going to do them? There's good works for you to do, right? Um, James talks about like, look, don't just like see needs and go, oh, needs, what a messed up world. You know, tea time is it. You know what I'm saying? James is like, what good is that? Like you're not filled with it. And then First John talks about um, you must, if you claim to be in Christ, you must do as he did. Um, John 13, Jesus says, um, no servant is above his master, so I'm going to show you what I have for you. Get out the water. I'm going to wash your feet. And like that, I want you to serve other people. You know, so they're both there. I try to explain it to our staff like this. To talk about my identity as a husband and to divorce that from my actions as a husband is counterintuitive. They live together in an amalgam. At all times, I am both Tamara's husband and everything I do is representative of whether I'm a good husband or bad husband, a, a responsible husband or an irresponsible husband. And so what I do and who I am, um, I have, I'm a father. That's an identity, but it also has practical implications to everything I do. Those two things are like gold in a rock. You can't take them apart, okay? So this active, passive distinction, where should we be? What's the answer to that? Both. For you today coming in, I don't know, let's go to coffee and, and try and figure it out. You might just need to settle down and hear from God. Go just out for 40 days into the wilderness. Um, or I might look at your life and just say, <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, varying degrees to, you know what, you're wasting my time. I'd rather go have coffee with somebody else that actually cares about God's plan for this world. Or it could be um, more mild than that. Um, <laughs> here's the deal. The deal is this. The word faith in the Bible this is where we tried to get with Kierkegaard a couple weeks ago. It's just this, am I willing to take this step where I let go of everything and now it's God's agenda? That's, that's faith. And is God's going to lead me to a place of peace and solitude? Yes. Is he going to lead me to the works that he has prepared for me before I was even born? Yes. Is one of them right or wrong? That's a ridiculous question. The point is, when I do the active stuff, it's Christ that leads me, that I'm doing it for, that, that all, it's Christ that empowers me. I can do all things through Christ. 
when I'm, when I'm alone and when I'm in prayer, when I'm just trusting, when I'm praying that God would give me enough faith to trust or enough energy to continue, it's, it's Christ. Do you get that? So the whole thing that I try to preach every me- I don't try, it just comes out that way. The thing that, that evidently I'm preaching every message is this one thing, it's Christ. Everything is spiritual. We're going to get this to next week. Facebook is spiritual. Where you go to lunch is spiritual. Your life is the canvas of the spiritual things that Christ would do in and through and with you. And when we go to lunch, when we go on Facebook, when we sit down in our small group, we say, Christ, God, what do you got? What do you got for me here? Do you want me to receive? Do you want me to give? Do you want me to listen? Do you want me to do? Do you want me to, what, what do you got for me? Because I only want to be with you and doing whatever you would have me do in whatever the situation. Everything is spiritual. Everything is Everything is spiritual. So this faith step is really, are we willing to not keep Christ in a box or put God in a box, this religious box, this Sunday box, or are we willing to do the absurd thing, Kierkegaard's word again, of just making it all about Christ? And when we do that one thing, it affects everything else. So on Sunday morning, there's 500 of you. I don't know what you most need. I I know there's one thing that you all need. And that's if you're limping between two opinions. If you've got a playbook that has 2,000 plays in it. If you lack confidence if you're wavering and waffling, if it's, if it's difficult and confusing and slow because you don't know which way to go, by faith, we all need to take a step and commit ourselves to Christ. Really kind of not knowing where it's going to go from there, but knowing that everything changes because of that one decision whether you've never made that decision or whether, whether you're like, you've been a Christian for 40 years and today you just got to walk out here going, Christ, it's all yours. Where do, where do you want me to go for lunch? Who do you want me to go with? Am I listening or am I talking? Just renew in me a passion to be lockstep Let me experience your love. Let me love because of that love. Let me understand that your love is going to just grow us together. It's the nature of love to bind two things together. But no matter what, God, don't let me leave here, whether I've been a Christian for 40 years or I'm not even a Christian. Don't let me leave here waffling. I, I want the peace that comes from confidence. I want the... The, the confidence that comes from clarity, help give me the ability to just choose you. That's that to me. That's, that's the message. Next week we'll, we'll get to the message. That was the introduction. Um, let me pray for us. But golly gee, let's just understand that no matter what we do, 
whether we eat, whether we drink, whether we act, whether we don't act, let us have the ability in our understanding of our messiness and our need to do all things for Christ, through Christ, to Christ. Let's choose to join the story or the song the way it's being sung and not have a dissonant part. Let's want nothing more than to be with God, wanting what God wants for us. Father, I just pray if we need to hear your words of hope that we would hear them loud and clear this morning. We know that you do have plans for us. We know that the end is a good end. We know that you are are loving and patient and kind and that you act on behalf of those who wait for you. Father, if we need to hear that this morning, I just pray that we would hear it as if it's being shouted from the rooftops. Father, if we're on the other end of the spectrum and we're just making a mockery of your son, if we're making a mockery of this faith, if we're making a mockery of our, our witness and our testimony, I pray that you would, in only the way you can, draw us to you that we might confess our sins, that guilt would just kind of evaporate and not be that just that weird thing that we in our immaturity balk at. I just only the way you can, Father. Just like the like the father with the prodigal son, just embrace us. You come running to us. You just, Father, somehow allow us to repent, to experience grace all over again. And then in that we would want nothing, nothing more than to be with you, be found in you, and to not leave again, even if we mess up to come right back. God, we just commit our neighbors to you. We commit this church to you. We commit the, the kids to you. We commit this thing to you that we would just be a part of that story. Father, as we, as we take the offering and then go, I just pray that you would help this church to grow as a community, grow in our unity, in our ability to truly help encourage each other into this thing called the Christian faith. Pray that.